Welcome to Baines Explains, your guide to navigating the tricky issues facing businesses today. I'm your host, Julian Whittle. Each episode, I will be chatting to specialists from Baines Wilson to find out more about the legal topics that will affect your business. In this episode, Baines Explains, the latest trends in dispute resolution. Hello, I'm here with Elizabeth Black, who is a partner at Baines Wilson and head of dispute resolution and litigation. We're going to discuss recent trends and developments in dispute resolution. So Elizabeth, the COVID-19 pandemic has permeated every sphere of life and business in the last two years. How has it affected the way that dispute resolution is conducted? What, if anything, has changed? Hi, Julian. Well, yes, you're right. The COVID pandemic has brought about extraordinary change and challenges in many areas of life and the dispute resolution landscape is no different. COVID has forced everyone working in dispute resolution to rethink how we deal with cases and has taught us that we can function remotely. I think that we've all adapted very well to remote working, remote hearings and such like. And I personally, like many other dispute resolution solicitors, was involved in a number of successful remote hearings and mediations during the pandemic. And this is something that I would like to see continue not least due to savings in time and costs for clients. I expect that the world of remote court hearings as well is one which dispute resolution lawyers and the parties to those disputes will be spending more time in. And what what other changes have there been, if any? Yes, there's been a number of pilot schemes introduced during the pandemic. So they're pilot schemes which are running in the courts um, and they're currently running. So two which were introduced during the pandemic, one of them is the electronic working pilot scheme. So again, this is a a move towards more online systems. So it's a scheme whereby documents are filed with the court electronically, and then they're stored electronically in files which are then accessible to the parties themselves, the court and the judiciary. And then fees and other payments to the court can also be paid online. This isn't something that's totally new. E-filing has been used by solicitors in certain courts since round about 2015. And it has also been compulsory in certain courts, but it's now being rolled out more widely. So it's now intended that this scheme will be rolled out to other courts during the course of the year. And then another scheme which came into place as well during the pandemic is the Damages Claims Online Pilot Scheme. This has been in operation since May last year, and it can currently only be used by legal representatives. And it's testing an online claims process called Damages Claims. Claims in that scheme are managed using what has been called the damages portal and it's a scheme which enables the parties to issue proceedings digitally, to upload and file court documents and it also provides initial case management and hearing information to the parties. At the moment the cases in which the scheme can be used are limited. It can only be used in cases where a claim is being brought by a single claimant against a single defendant but that will probably broaden out over time. So the pilot is currently only in the first stage, but it ultimately aims to provide an end-to-end process for damages claims in the county court from pre-action all the way through to enforcement of judgments. And do you expect further developments towards an online court system? Because that seems to be the direction of travel with all this. Yeah, it certainly is. I very much think that's right. Um, The Master of the Rolls too has reinforced that. He's of the view that the pandemic has brought with it an opportunity to rethink the whole justice process. And he envisages a future online digitised court system 
an increased focus on giving court users the opportunity to resolve disputes by consent before trial, and expect, it's expected that making offers of settlement and mediations will be at the front and centre of that system, so not all cases will go to court, fewer and fewer will. But and as with current money claims online system, that's used quite widely already, people are already familiar with that, and the idea is that these more digital systems will be more user-friendly and can be used at lower cost. Okay, I'd like to move on to talk a little bit about alternative dispute resolution. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so there is a push for parties to try and settle their cases at proportionate cost and as early as is realistic outside of going to court for a final trial. So there are, there are various ways that cases can be settled. That can be by negotiation between the parties, whether it's in by the exchange of without prejudice settlement offers with solicitors or also settlement meetings with the parties and their solicitors present. And there are also more formal methods as well, such as mediation or arbitration. Okay, there's been some debate in the legal press as to whether it, it's desirable for, for alternative dispute resolution to actually be on imposed on parties to court proceedings. What, what's your view, if you like, on moving away from alternative dispute resolution being seen as an you know, alternative? Should it actually be the norm? Should it be a requirement for parties? Yeah, well, as I've said, there certainly has been a push by the judiciary towards alternative dispute resolution, shortened to ADR, um, to be used more often. It's very much actually encouraged by the courts, and I certainly have settled far more disputes at mediation or through negotiation, for, for example, over the past few years than those that have gone all the way to trial, and a final contested trial is actually very rare, even now. The push really towards that has been driven mainly by the disproportionality of costs and the inevitable uncertainty when a case does go all the way to trial. There are always risks as to the outcome. It's very dependent upon how witnesses are seen when they, they give their evidence at court. And actually there are also some cost consequences which can be imposed by courts if a party unreasonably refuses to engage in, in ADR. So that's the position even now before that there's any sort of concept of compulsory ADR. And really every dispute, however contested it is by the party, parties, is probably capable of settlement at some point, provided the right form of ADR is used at the right time. Clients certainly like the flexibility you can get with ADR and trying to negotiate a settlement, and it enables you to reach an agreement with the other side, which you wouldn't be able to get with just a court judgment. So, for example, a party may choose to settle a contract dispute, um, by way of terms of compromise, which see the parties entering into, say, a new supply contract, that just wouldn't be possible at a trial. Or settlement terms may be agreed, which involve a sum of money being paid to the other party, but it can be paid by instalments. So really, the options for settlement are endless if terms are agreed by consent, whereas the court's jurisdiction can be more limited to just an award of money, an award of damages. So certainty and an early resolution are also positives for the client which come out of ADR. Many actually don't appreciate at the start how time-consuming taking a case through to trial can be. It's also stressful as well. But in terms of parties being compelled to mm. enter into ADR, it was actually in the summer last year in July 
Um, the Civil Justice Council published a report which concluded that compulsory ATR is compatible with Article 6 of the European Convention on Human Rights and the right to a fair trial, and it's therefore lawful. The Ministry of Justice also backed that up and expressed the view back in August that ADR should be put at the centre of the civil justice process. So further developments in this area are certainly expected, and they're also generally welcomed. But there is more work which needs to be done to determine the types of case which are suitable for a form of compulsory ADR and importantly the appropriate timing of it because timing especially for a mediation for example is, is pretty critical if you if you try to engage in a mediation too early or even too late in a dispute it might not succeed so in summary compulsory ADR is quite a controversial idea for many lawyers and their clients and there'll always be clients who want to have their day in court no matter what the cost but others who see, rightly or wrongly, ADR as a sign of weakness. I mean, it's interesting because you, 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 you've outlined a lot of advantages to ADR over and above the cost saving, which I suppose is, is what maybe first comes to mind to clients when they're considering that route. That's, that's very interesting, Elizabeth. Has, has the pandemic, I wondered, and the, you know, the related increase in remote working caused any data or security issues? Yes, I, I think it certainly has. Obviously, there's a lot more hybrid working and working from home. So that obviously involves more data being shared online via cloud-based and other digital platforms, for example. And linked with that then is the potential for sensitive data to be accessed improperly via hacking, for, for example. So due to that, many law firms, and Baines, Wilson are no exception, have identified security as a priority and they've increased cyber security measures to protect clients and their work. Good. Um, how, do, how do fixed costs in litigation work? Yeah, so fixed costs provide parties with greater certainty on the potential cost exposure if a case does go to trial. It's widely known that litigation is expensive and as a general rule, saving cases where the value of the claim is low, generally under £10,000, the unsuccessful party will be ordered to pay the winner's legal costs and also to, they'll pay their own legal costs. So the fear of losing a case and being exposed to costs like that can put many claimants off bringing proceedings in the first place. But fixed recoverable costs set the amount of legal costs which the winning party can recover from the losing party and they therefore give certainty as to the potential exposure that the loser may have. Generally, they'll only apply in straightforward, lower value cases, and in certain cases such as personal injury claims and enforcement proceedings. But the downside of them is that the amount of cost which you can recover, which is set, doesn't generally cover the actual costs which might have been incurred. And they've actually been around for a while, it was, but back in 2017, Sir Rupert Jackson, who's a former Court of Appeal judge, he was commissioned with the task of drawing up recommendations to extend the current fixed cost regime so as to make the cost of going to court more certain and transparent and ideally more proportionate. And then following that, it was actually in September last year, following a government consultation, that Sir Rupert Jackson's recommendation that fixed costs be extended was approved so that they'll be extended to all civil cases ultimately on the fast track with a value of up to £25,000 in damages and there's also a recommendation to expand the fast track so it actually includes larger value cases with, of lower complexity so probably cases of, with a value of between £25,000 to £100,000 in damages so this means that far more cases will going forward be caught by that regime. 
What's the reaction been to these proposals? Uh, it's fair to say they've faced criticism, um, including from the Law Society. Um, the Law Society is concerned that limiting recoverable, recoverable costs in that way may actually adversely affect access to justice. Um, and another issue which needs to be borne in mind is that simply limit, limiting the costs which are recoverable doesn't actually reduce the amount of work that needs to be done on a particular case to take it through to trial. So the Bar Council, for example, has commented that the fixed recoverable cost regime needs to balance out controlling costs overall, but also enabling professionals to do the work that needs to be done and to be properly remunerated for the work. So if the regime doesn't control costs, then it's difficult to see what useful function it's going to be performing. And it could result in solicitors either just not being willing to be involved in cases which are subject to fixed costs, or those cases could just then be left to less, less experienced fee earners who have a lower charge out rate. So the government's view is that by limiting recoverable costs, the focus will then be on settlement, which is quite a recurrent theme from the outset. And I agree that it is likely to focus minds on settlement. I take the approach that settlement should always be at the forefront of the parties' minds from the outset. Even cases which seem pretty straightforward from the outset still carry risk. And in my experience, litigation, especially for claims in the region of £25,000 to £50,000, are generally not actually commercial to pursue. And as solicitors, it is our duty to advise clients on not only merits of a case at the outset, but also on likely overall costs and commerciality. So in my view, the move towards more online claims and a requirement for parties to engage in ADR is, more is a, really a more appropriate mechanism for reducing costs rather than just limiting the costs that the successful party can recover. And as the Law Society has said, the Ministry of Justice response at the moment doesn't take into account the fact that the justice system has, as we've already discussed, it's already been considerably reshaped by the pandemic. And there are also ongoing court reforms in place, as well as a raft of other changes in other areas of justice. Okay, can I um, get you to appear into your crystal ball? <laughs> and what do you see as being the growth areas for commercial disputes in, in 2022? Yeah, well, I certainly think there will be some on the back of um, hopefully the end of the pandemic and coming out of that and moving away from some of the temporary restrictions which were in place. So as part of that, I think there's likely to be a significant increase in insolvencies um, and in insolvency litigation due to many factors. There's a decrease in government funding post-pandemic, increasing interest and inflation rates, and therefore there's probably likely to be an increase in corporate distress. So during the pandemic, the ability to bring insolvency proceedings was significantly limited. There were temporary restrictions which were put in place to protect businesses who were in financial distress because of the pandemic. But those restrictions were expected to come to an end at the end of March. A Supreme Court decision is actually also expected this year. It's the case of Sequana. And that will address the question as to precisely when directors are expected to know that their company is insolvent or likely to become insolvent, which will then trigger an obligation on directors to act in the best interests of creditors rather than shareholders. I also expect that there will be an increase in action by landlords who will be pursuing commercial rent arrears um, because again the protective measures which were in place during the pandemic to prevent court proceedings to recover those arrears will also come to an end in March. 
the commercial rent coronavirus bill will then come into force and that will mean that parties then will be required to arbitrate for any rent arrears which are linked to the pandemic. Okay. I wondered, um, has Brexit had any impact on litigation? Um, it has, but there, there's still a lot that's uncertain actually following Brexit um, when it comes to civil justice issues. So before Brexit, there were EU instruments in place and they provided a framework of rules for aspects of civil justice and judicial cooperation, such as for determining which court would have jurisdiction over a dispute, ascertaining the law that would apply to, for example, a contractual dispute, and also rules relating to service of documents in the EU, cross-border enforcement of judgments and the like. So, for example, if prior to Brexit you were to buy a product online, it was then shipped from a company in the EU, and then once you received it, you discovered that the product was not what you'd ordered. When we had civil judicial cooperation, you could enforce rights across the two different legal jurisdictions involved. So civil judicial cooperation provides clarity and it actually protects individuals. And without it, enforcement of foreign judgments becomes a matter of national law, which then causes with it practical difficulties and does increase costs. So there were a number of regulations which applied um, prior to Brexit. There was the recast Brussels regulation that regulated issues of jurisdiction and the recognition and enforcement of judgments between member states. And there was also a very similar convention, the Lugano Convention, which provided a similar framework. And again, it governed issues of jurisdiction and enforcement of judgments between the member states and the European Free Trade Association. And the UK was a party to that, the Lugano Convention, when it was in member state. But to date, unfortunately, there hasn't been any agreement to replace either the recast Brussels regulation or the Lugano Convention. It was in April 2020 that the UK government did actually formally apply to join the Lugano Convention again, but it needs the, to have the consent of the contracting parties. So Iceland, Norway and Switzerland, they have all consented, but it was in May last year that the EU stated that it wasn't in a position to consent. And in a briefing paper, the EU commented that accession should be linked with close economic integration with the EU and it shouldn't be offered to any third country that isn't part of the internal market. So really, the final decision on the UK's application rests with the Council of the European Union at the moment, but it isn't com- currently looking promising. So if, if Lugano's <coughs> off the table, are there, are there any other options? There are in terms of parties pursuing commercial court proceedings. So many cases still are caught by the scope of the 2005 Hague Convention, which relates to choice of court. Um, And the the UK rejoined that that convention in January 2021 after Brexit. So we can still rely on that. So it's a choice of court agreement. It applies where there's an exclusive jurisdiction clause in a contract, but it only applies in circumstances where you are a party to a claim which concerns a contract with one of those clauses. So it doesn't apply to other types of claims, um, personal injury claims, for example, or claims that just don't arise from a contractual relationship. So if the Hague Convention doesn't apply, then questions of jurisdiction and enforcement again fall down to rules in the UK and the member states. And again, that's all more complex to deal with and more costly. But in the longer term, the situation may be more positive. There is still the possibility of the UK signing up to the 2019 Hague Judgments Convention, which actually goes further than the 2005 Convention anyway. 
um, and it's not limited just to judgments based on contracts with exclusive jurisdiction clauses. Okay, so what, what advice would you give to businesses that are, are regularly conducting business with, with EU member st- states or indeed, you know, countries anywhere in the world? Yeah, well, as, is, as ever, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. Review contracts carefully. That's got to be the key piece of advice that I would give. So if you entered into a contract with an exclusive jurisdiction provision before January 2021, it would definitely be prudent to consider drawing up a new agreement now, just to ensure that that agreement is caught by the Hague Convention. But remember though, if you're going to need to enforce a judgment in possibly multiple jurisdictions across the world, then choosing a dispute resolution clause just because it fits with Hague Convention may not be sensible. So if, for example, parties are unable to identify where a dispute may arise or where they may may need to enforce a judgment, you may then need a more flexible clause which could provide, for example, for an alternative method to resolve the issue, such as arbitration. That could end up being more appropriate. So the governing law of the contract is also important for parties to consider. English law is popular as a governing law clause. It's a sensible jurisdiction and a very commercial choice. And it's a contractual choice between the parties as to whether to be governed by English law. And if that decision is made, it will then be upheld by EU courts. But the most important thing I would say, as ever, is in in circumstances such as that, take specialist legal advice. That's a good note to end on. Elizabeth, that's been a brilliant overview. Thanks very much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Baines Explains. You can find more information about the topic discussed today and sign up for regular alerts on changes to case law and legislation by visiting our website, www.baineswilson.co.uk. To keep up to date with what our team is up to, follow us on Twitter and on LinkedIn by searching Baines Wilson LLP. Don't forget to subscribe to Baines Explains and tune in next week for another episode.